When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Hello and welcome to Ask the Expert. I'm your host, Steph Sorer, and I'm so excited to welcome today's guest, academic historian Sarah Bendel. Sarah is here today to answer your questions about fashion in England during the 15 and 1600s. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to answer some of these questions. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So, okay, fashion is one of those kind of ever-changing trends that tell us, you know, so much more about time, really, than we even realize. It's not just about style all the time, right? But it can also give us a glimpse into culture and the way of life of the subjects. So today's listener questions are so interesting, and I can see why I'd want to research this topic if I were you. But Sarah, what brought you to this topic as your focus? Um, I think it was a general love of um, dressing up, actually, <laughs> as a child. Um, and yeah, I always wanted, I always loved objects and things. I always wanted to be an archaeologist, actually, growing up. Um, and when I was a bit older, I sort of got into sewing, you know, rediscovered sewing um, as a way to be able to make, you know, costumes to be able to go to dress up parties or um, Halloween, which isn't as much of a big thing in Australia as it is in North America. But, um, and so I slowly sort of started to, um, think, you know, the same way that, you know, as you just explained then that this is such an interesting way to, to think about history and to explore history, such an interesting lens. And I started to sort of incorporate that into my, um, my work when I was an undergraduate, um, and then decided, Hey, I'm going to keep researching this. And here I am. (laughs) Well, I love that because we're really happy that you've become an expert on this. It brought you here, right? So, all right, let's get to it. So there are so, the first thing we definitely have to talk about is that there are so many unfamiliar terms when it comes to clothing and fashion at the time. So first things first, let's be clear that my New Jersey American accent can only go so far. So I'm going to try my best, right? But I'm definitely going to say things wrong all over the place here. But I'm going to start out by kind of just throwing at you all the terms that all of our listeners have written in. There's so many different things that people were, you know, asking, what's this and what's this? And so maybe you can give us an idea of what a day in the life of a woman getting dressed was, because we have things like a stomacher, a girdle, a kirtle, a ruff, a farthing, farthing, oh my gosh, a farthingale. (laughs) And what are they all? And were they all worn together? What were the purposes? So maybe you could just kind of take us through getting dressed. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, it does differ a bit over the sort of 16th, 17th century. So I'll start with maybe like, you know, the mid, the mid 16th century, and then I can, um, can move from there. So the basic, um, garment that every woman would have worn, 
um, actually throughout the whole 16th and 17th century, and men too, was um, a basic linen undergarment called a smock or a shift or a shirt if you're a man. Um, so that's, again, that sort of what we see in the movies, that really basic voluminous white undergarment that everybody would have worn. And then over that, um, most women would have worn, so if you were maybe an upper-class woman in the middle of the 16th century, you would have put a kirtle on over that. So a kirtle um, is it's best to think of that as a, as a sleeveless underdress. So the bodice could often be um, stiffened a little bit in the 1600, sorry, in the mid 16th century. It was usually just with um, thicker fabrics, maybe some pasteboard, something like that. Um, and so this was just, you know, a basic sleeveless underdress. And then over the top of that, you could um, wear, you would put on a, well, if you're an upper class woman, you would put on a gown. Um, which was often in the mid-16th century had a bodice that was attached to a skirt. It came in various different um, styles. You had French gowns, you had Polish gowns, Italian gowns, um, all sort of meaning different things. Um, and then over the top of that, so a girdle, I think that was one of the questions. A girdle was a decorative band um, or belt that was placed around the waist or hips. Often um, it sort of dangled down in the front of the dress. You will see sort of Tudor portraiture with people wearing that. Um, and then, so that was, I, I would say, for um, a basic, oh, sorry, I'm actually missing something. You had a petticoat as well. So a petticoat is one of those strange garments that can mean um lots of different things and I think that's where sort of the terminology in this period can get a little bit confused. So kirtles and petticoats were very similar in sort of the 16th century. It was, well, a kirtle was a sleeveless underdress um, with a bodice that was attached to a skirt and a petticoat could also be that. Um, a petticoat though could have sleeves, it could have detachable sleeves, um, generally they were red and petticoats were more widely worn than kirtles. Kirtles seem to only occur in the sort of more upper class wardrobes and they're generally made from quite nice fabrics, um, silks, for example, whereas a petticoat was um, worn by all women, usually red, often wool. And by the 17th century, um, the petticoat sort of supersedes the kirtle. You don't really see kirtles um, much in the sources anymore into the 17th century. You mainly are seeing um, petticoats. So I think another question, um, and often, so if you were a lower class woman, you would be wearing a, a smock, a petticoat, uh, maybe an under petticoat. So that was a petticoat without the attached bodice. This is where the terminology becomes quite confusing. If you were an upper-class woman, you could also be wearing various layers of petticoats underneath your gown and kirtle, depending on um, how how warm, I'm sorry, how cold it was. But if you were a lower-class woman, you would often also be wearing um, a waistcoat, which is a lot of people call a jacket, but at the time it was known as a waistcoat. So this is just this sort of, um, yeah, a jacket bodice um, that, that women would wear. Um, if you were to wear a matching bodice with your petticoat, that could create a gown as well. Um, so there's all these sort of confusing, confusing terms, but generally that's sort of, um, to be very basic, that's sort of the general getting dressed as a woman. And often, obviously, underneath you would have stockings as well and garters to hold up your stockings. 
there's sort of a debate over whether draws were a thing um, at the time. A lot of people say no, but I've found draws in Henrietta Maria's wardrobe accounts, um, only a couple of pairs, um, and so that's in the 1630s. So there's definitely evidence that some women wore drawers in the 1630s. We don't know how often or when, possibly only in winter when it was quite chilly. But I think the other, yeah, the other term stomacher, which is sort of one of, again, can mean various different things. Um, but a stomacher is, was a triangular um, piece of fabric or an insert into a pair of bodies. So um, in its most basic form, it's a triangular piece of fabric that's often embroidered or decorated in some way with spangles, for example, um, which are sort of like modern sequins. Um, and it would go into the front of a gown or over the front of a gown. And so if you see in portraiture this beautiful sort of decorated triangular piece of fabric at the front of the gown bodice, that's a stomacher. But a stomacher could also be um, an uh, uh, insert into a pair of bodies, which were basically the earliest corset. So in this period, it's called a pair of bodies. They're not called stays until the 1680s. And that was, so most of them in the 16th and 17th centuries in England um, were front lacing. So the beauty of the stomacher was that, you know, as your body changes as a woman, you know, women are pregnant multiple times during, you know, this period, um, you know, just generally women's bodies tend to fluctuate throughout the month. You could put in this triangular piece that was often boned like the rest of the garment and you could control how tightly or loosely you would lace your pair of bodies. Um, and so it really gives you that advantage of being able to control the, um, the size of the garment um, as your body changes over time. So those are the two types of stomachers during this period. You mentioned that the petticoat was usually red. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any significance to that? Why, why would that be? Well, it was thought that red was a, a, a colour that was good for health, so good for the humours. And, yeah, for, for some reason, universally across the social, sort, uh, social sorts in England, they seem to have mostly been red. They could, of course, be other colours, but red was a very popular colour. And it, it seems to be to do with sort of balancing the humours and humoral medicine at the time. So red was seen as a nice sort of healthy colour to wear you know, close to the body. That's so interesting. So now you went through the whole outfit and how long does it take to put on something like that? Have you ever put on something like that? Yeah, I did actually. Um, so obviously I didn't really mention all the accessories that you could put on as well. Um, but for example, for Halloween, I recently, I made a 1650s outfit. So I can go through the layers that are involved there. Um, oh, actually, I totally forgot that I forgot to mention a farthingale <laughs> in my um, my rambles. Um, so I'll go through, though, the, the outfit that I put on for the 1650s. Um, That's great. Do you have a picture of this outfit that you put together? I do, actually, yeah. It's on my, um, on my Instagram. I have an Instagram where I, um, I sort of talk about I make things sort of incorporate my academic research with my love of sewing and <laughs> um, stuff like that. So, yeah, if anyone wants to check that out, they can. 
Okay, perfect. So why don't you take us through the outfit? Definitely take us through how long it takes to put it on. And then we'll see maybe if you can send us the picture, we can put it in our show notes. And um, we'll definitely give everybody your Instagram account to check that out. That would be cool to, you know, put a visual to, you know, what we're talking about. Yeah, of course. Um, So yeah, so again, the basic sort of undergarment during this time um, is a um, smock. And then over the top of that would be a petticoat skirt. So um, not with an attached bodice because the bodice that we're going to put on later is quite stiff and bone. So you don't really need two layers of support. And then over the top of that petticoat, so you could have multiple petticoats. I just had one petticoat. Um, I put a bum roll, which was by the mid 17th century. Um, you had um, the farthingale which I neglected to mention earlier. So the farthingale in the mid-16th century, for example, was a hooped understructure, sort of would become what in the 19th century, I think most people are familiar with the crinoline. Um, that's sort of the 19th century version. But in the 16th century, it's called a, a, a farthingale. And so the hooped type of skirt was known as a Spanish farthingale in England because it has its origins in Spain. Um, but it by sort of... Uh, the the turn of the 17th century, French farthingales were quite popular. And so those were either, um, there were two types. There was a big roll that you would place around your waist and hips, um, a padded roll, which sort of, uh, I guess, looked a little bit like um, a life buoy, you know, that you would jump, you know, the, the ship is sinking, you would jump out. And there was also another type which had, which we call like a wheel farthingale, which was a flat disc shape. So they sort of reached their height of popularity um, in the Jacobean period. And then by the 1620s, 1630s, they sort of slowly start to fall out of popularity in their large forms. But then they become something called a bum roll, which was exactly what it sounds, a roll of, um, you know, a stuffed roll, usually with horse hair or um, wool or cotton that was placed around the waist and hips. So you just tie it around and it sort of creates um, a large, um, a bum really. And so that would go on over the petticoat. And then over that, I would put on my other petticoat, outer petticoat skirt, which would be the outer skirt. And so if you, um, if you're listening along and you're looking at the image, that's the brown skirt. Um, and then over the top of that in the 1650s, in this outfit was the bodice. So by the 1650s, um, this particular style, which could have been worn at court, for example, um, the bodice, the boning, the bone sort of bodice was incorporated into the outer garment. So it's sort of all in one. But women also did wear um, bodies that were undergarments as well. For example, um, in more day-to-day life, they might wear sort of the petticoat, the bum roll, the petticoat skirt, and then they'd be wearing a pair of bodies, which is an undergarment, like a corset, and then maybe a waistcoat over the top. But in this outfit, the, the bodice is sort of all in one. It's boned. Um, and so it's a beautiful um, silk bodice that laces up the front. And that's really the basic sort of outfit during this period. And then you could have a kerchief um, which would, uh, or a neckerchief, which would cover up, you know, your chest area a bit more. Um, you could have various types of laces and falling bands. Um, obviously, you would have um, silk stockings on, for example, or woolen stockings if you were less, you know, um, well-to-do. 
but yeah, it's, it's a bit more simple by the mid-17th century than it is in the mid-16th century. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. Now moving up the body to their heads, right? Yeah. What is the basic difference between an English hood and a French hood? And why would you choose one or the one over the other? Yeah, so the English hood and the French hood are um they're quite distinct in terms of their appearance. Um so the English hood or the gable hood is is another name for it. Um is that sort of classic um more boxy um shaped hood. It looks it always reminds me of um you know the cuckoo bird like houses in clocks. Yes. <laughs> the way that it's shaped. Right. Oh, that's funny. And now of course that's what I'm going to think of every single time I ever see one because you're totally right about that. I know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so yeah, it has um yeah, well that's why it's called a gable hood as well. I guess cuz gables being to do with a roof. So it does look like a roofed structure that I guess um, it looks like a house. Yeah. And so that was sort of, that's the English hood. That's the earliest version. And it's interesting. I think in a lot of films and TV, they show um, Anne Boleyn, for example, is always wearing a French hood. But we actually think she never really wore French hoods that much. The only surviving um, image that we have of Anne Boleyn comes from a coin. And in that, she's actually wearing a, a gable hood or an English hood. So a French hood, on the other hand, um, I think it's the hood that most people prefer aesthetically, I think, to modern eyes. It's a lot nicer. So it's the more rounded hood that you usually um, see in a lot of period dramas. And I think, you know, TV productions, they prefer using that hood as well. But that was a French hood because it came from France. It was quite popular in France. In England, it definitely came into fashion. And, you know, as most sort of French fashions did. But um, the gable hood was still, or the English hood, was still quite popular as well. Poor Jane Seymour and Catherine of Aragon. Now, every time I look at a picture of them, I'm going to, like, picture a cuckoo bird coming out of their hood. (laughs) I'm so sorry about that. That's all I think of every time. (laughs) Oh, that's too funny. So, okay, so now we're up top. We'll, We'll stay above the neck now. We talked about the hoods. What about skincare? Does that count as fashion for you? Because one listener asked about, eating gold leaf to make their skin glow so there's that and then of course we all know the lengths to which elizabeth the first went to appear you know beautiful and youthful with the crazy makeup and stuff so maybe we can talk about that a little bit yeah of course i've actually never heard of them eating gold leaf before but that sort of does i think that question is really interesting because it does speak to um the beauty culture of the time and the work, so Erin um, Griffey, she's an associate professor of art history at University of Auckland. She's looking into um, her new researches on um, beauty during the, particularly during the 17th century. And, you know, she and others um, have found some really interesting beauty recipes, would you say? So the equivalent of skincare. Um, and there was actually, I think a lot of people, um, 
you know, our understanding is, yeah, as you said, like Elizabeth I wearing these sort of crazy heavy makeup. We think of people in the theatre, for example, again, wearing these, um, you know, lead and mercury-based face paints. But actually at the time there was much more emphasis on what, what we would call now and, you know, as there is now as well in modern beauty culture on skincare, on trying to not just cover up your skin but to sort of maintain the skin's health and sort of beauty from within, so to speak. So um, actually the lead and mercury-based paints, um, they're sort of not as common as we think that they are. Um, and they certainly, if they were, they weren't sort of caked on like we think of. They definitely were around. Um, so at the time they were called fucus. And there's a lot of, you know, in, um, in literature, in moralizing treatises, in sort of English plays and city comedies, there's always a lot of... Um, uh, people making fun of people of women wearing these face paints, but we actually don't think it was as common as these sort of you know literature is making it out to be. So, um, in the beauty sort of books that we find from the period and the recipe books, there's actually much more emphasis, and they do contain some recipes um, that are you know to make these sorts of face paints or what we would call. Um, I guess it would be similar to sort of the the modern sort of water. Um, there's a lot of now like modern sort of foundations that are sort of serums as well. So they're very sheer and they're not really supposed to correct blemishes necessarily, but they're supposed to sort of make your skin glow and sort of give you that beautiful, you know, this is my natural skin. So there are actually recipes for that. They were often made from um, animal fats, for example. And so they're supposed to be translucent, but also make your skin look nice. Um, but there was also a lot of emphasis on skincare to sort of obtain a blemish-free a, a blemish white um, complexion. Again, obviously we're talking about England, white skin was... Um, the beauty ideal at the time. So lovely blemish, blemish free white skin, you know, rosy cheeks, um, which sort of doesn't really change much for the next few hundred years, but there's a lot of emphasis. Yeah. On skincare. Um, Aaron's actually been remaking some of these skincare recipes. A lot of them were, were made using, you know, basic herbs like rosemary, um, things like that. You get, um, I found references to spermaceti. So, especially by the late 17th century. So that's a whale oil. And they would often make rouge as well. So from Brazil wood, sandalwood, cochineal, that type of thing. But yeah, there's a lot more emphasis in this period on actual skin care and taking care of your skin and sort of um, skincare products to get rid of blemishes rather than these sort of heavy lead-based paints that we think of. And did everyone have access to these types of herbs and fats and, you know, the different things to to care for your skin that they were using or was that just an upper class thing? No, I mean, definitely some of these things were just upper class, um, particularly, you know, um, Brazil wood, for example, or spermaceti. Um, but a lot of lower class people would have had access to these sorts of, um, you know, a lot of them are, are basic sort of what we think of as basic English garden herbs. A lot of the fats are just animal fats, um, you know, beeswax, that type of thing. And a lot of these recipe books that we're looking at, I wouldn't say they're um, they're really low class, but they're also not they're not courtiers either. 
And I think a lot of these recipes would have filtered somewhat down to the lower classes. And I think, you know, people in the lower classes, I think it's sort of a myth to think that they didn't care about how they looked. They definitely did. And, you know, if the prevailing cultural beauty standard is, you know, fair white skin, I I think it's fair to say that a lot of, you know, lower class women in particular um, would have strived to sort of, you know, meet that beauty ideal. So they definitely, um, a lot of these recipes would have been easy to make for lower class people who had access, you know, to a herb garden, for example. Now, speaking of the lower class, were there restrictions on who could wear certain types of clothing or styles or what? And I'm not necessarily speaking about access to things because, of course, money would play a role in what you were able to wear. But for lack of a better word, was there were there certain things that certain levels of people were not necessarily, quote, permitted to be wearing? Yeah, so definitely during the 16th century, we have something and beforehand something called sumptuary legislation. Um, And so this was common in, you know, most European countries during this period. England's sumptuary legislation actually isn't as extensive or as um, harsh, for lack of a better word, than a lot of continental European um, sumptuary legislations. Um, so in England, um, various sumptuary laws had, had existed since the 15th century. Um, most of them only were concerned, though, with men's dress. So it's not actually until Elizabeth um, comes to power that we get our first sumptuary legislation that targets women. But all sumptuary legislation in England, whether it was targeted at men and women, actually didn't really target the types of garments worn necessarily. Like it didn't restrict a garment to a certain population. It was mainly concerned with the types of fabrics, colours and trims that were used in clothing um, rather than the type of garment itself. So, for example, I've just, um, you know, was having a look before and, um, you know, an example of an Elizabethan era sumptuary legislation for men's clothing, for example, was that, you know, viscounts and barons and other persons of sort of you know, like degree, um, were allowed to wear cloth of silver, tinseled satin, silk, or a cloth mixed or embroidered with any gold in um, doublets, jerkins, and linings of cloaks and gowns and hose. So it was these types of things. Like you're allowed to wear this type of fabric in this type of garment. And for women, it, it, it was similar as well. So, for example, an Elizabethan um, sumptuary law against women says none shall wear any cloth of gold tissue nor fur of sables except duchesses, marquises and countesses in their gowns, kirtles, partlets and sleeves. So you have this type of sumptuary legislation um, and the point of sumptuary legislation was to really protect the inherited privileges of the elite. Um, It was to make them stand out from the rest of the population by restricting what the rest of the population could wear. So then while we're on the topic with this, the sumptuary laws, what other laws did the lower class have to follow as far as fashion? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And um, one that is quite related to the sumptuary legislation um, that I was talking about previously. So there weren't any um, laws necessarily besides the sumptuary laws that I'd already mentioned, which sort of aren't really well followed anyway. Um, But we do have a really interesting example um, in England, in London, from 1611, 
which is when um, the grocer's company, so in London you had various livery companies that controlled various professions within the city. And so you have one from the grocer's company that tried to limit um, what apprentices and maids could wear. And it's a really interesting um, look into, again, what people were actually wearing, but what I guess... I guess this wasn't necessarily a law in terms of um, it's not a state law um, or, you know, so, but it was a law within um, in the city of London. And so people, you know, according to this document, if they were caught breaking these rules, they would get fined. But we don't really hear much about this legislation after, you know, it comes in. So we don't know how well it was followed. But, for example, it sort of says no apprentices, so male apprentices, weren't allowed to wear Piccadilly collars, which Piccadilly collars are these sort of, um, they're similar to a ruff, which I think we will talk about in a little bit. But um, by the Jacobean period, by 1611, they're these large wire structures that would support either a ruff or a, a collar and they sort of surround the head. So it says they're not, not allowed to wear those. They're not allowed to wear velvet in their hats. They're not allowed to wear things like silk breeches, for example, which tells us that all these apprentices were wearing all of these things. Um, you know, I think, you know, when people could afford it or if they could get their hands on garments like this through the secondhand clothing trade, they definitely did. And then, for example, it says that maids aren't aware, allowed to wear ruffs. They're not allowed to wear silk petticoats or waistcoats or gowns. Um, they're not allowed to use silk lace. Um, they're not allowed to put um, wire or whalebone in their bodies or sleeves. So this is a really interesting example of um, not necessarily a law, but a restriction, uh, you know, that was tried to, you know, that they tried to put in place. But I think it's more, in more telling of what people were actually wearing at the time, um, which was, you know, much more varied and sort of... Um, socially mobile than we would usually think about. Let's go back to what you were just saying about a ruff. I think that we probably have to clarify for most people, including myself, <laughs> what is that? Yeah, so a ruff is a linen pleat so a pleated linen collar. So they originated from the collars of smocks and shirts, which we talked about previously. So it's sort of interesting to see over the 16th century they grow in size. So it, was, it sort of um, started as the little frill around the collar of a smock or a shirt that sort of slowly started to grow <laughs> in size and, um, you know, appearance out of, from un, you know, from this garment that sits underneath the outer clothing and sort of started to peek through. And then by sort of the mid to, to late 16th century, it becomes a totally separate accessory in itself. So it's a really, it's yards and yards of linen, beautiful white linen that has been, you know, bleached and then starched. So starched using something like wheat starch, for example, during this period. Um, and then it is set and pleated. So it's sort of bundled up into these pleats, which are set using hot irons until it creates this sort of round pleated collar that was worn around the neck. And so they could come in various sort of sizes. Some were, you know, it's around 
probably the 1590s, 1600, that they become huge in size. That's sort of, I guess, their, their biggest, you know, when they get the biggest in size. And then they slowly start to fall out of fashion or sort of get start to get smaller again during the Jacobean period. And during the Jacobean period, you also have um, something like um, a rubato or a Piccadilly collar. So these are sort of wired or um, other structures. So pasteboard was used, whalebone could be used, and they could support the rough or they could support what started to become more fashionable, which was just a plain linen band, which then over the other, if you sort of look throughout the 17th century, they start to just become fall-in collars. So the neckwear um, can get quite extreme during this period, but it sort of ebbs and flows as well in terms of size and shape. Well, moving on from the rough, we had a lot of listeners, excuse me, writing in, very concerned about the difficulty of getting dressed in this, <laughs> in this time. It's such a foreign concept, right? So everybody's like, what? All the layers? What are you supposed to do with all that? Mm-hmm. Right? So now I know that England is not necessarily known for its tropical climate, right? Yeah. <laughs> but when when it did get warm, what pieces could women remove or leave out so that they could stay cool? Yeah, that's a really interesting question um, because this period is actually the period of the Little Ice Age in Europe. Um, Well, in the world, I guess. So nothing. Add more layers, Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So it was actually a lot colder in this period um, than it is now. Um, You know, like the Thames would regularly freeze over. Um, You would, um, you know, there was a lot of bad harvests. Um, They're found in, you know, the, the natural record. Um, you know, for example, like tree growth rings, they've found lots of evidence of the little ice age during this period. So it was actually colder during this period, um, which is why, you know, when we think of all these woolen fabrics that they're wearing and all these like crazy layers, you know, how were they not so hot? Um, well, they actually (laughs) didn't get as hot as it does now. Um, but I would say in terms of, um, trying to keep cool um a farthingale for example was a great structure to to keep the fabric away from the legs and to keep cool so I think a lot of people think of these garments as being really cumbersome and like how did they you know walk around in those for example but they actually um served a purpose to keep the skirts away from the legs so if you were dancing for example you wouldn't trip up on your skirts Um, or, you know, in this period, if, um, you know, it was quite a hot day, it actually would provide a bit of relief, um, from, you know, around the legs. And there's actually sort of a, you know, one of the myths about how the hoop petticoat or, um, panniers of the 18th century came about is that in Paris, like 1711, it was a really hot day. And so, you know, these women, you know, (laughs) They put together this hooped structure to wear under their skirts to keep their skirts away from their legs. Um, Well, that's brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) But I would say mostly it's um, you may have, you know, not worn as many petticoats, for example, um, and you definitely wouldn't have worn drawers. 
But I would say mostly during this period, it's actually a lot colder than we think it is. So um, they probably didn't have to deal too much with heat unless they were going to somewhere, you know, like Jamestown, for example, in, in America or in more tropical climates. But even then, they probably would have just opted, you know, for... But even in Jamestown, they all of the records, the research that's been done there show that they were wearing a lot of wool. But wool is quite... Um, being a natural fiber, it actually is quite can be quite cool as well. But I'd, I'd say mostly they just sort of um, got on with it, and it was a little bit colder than it is now. Right. Well, I feel like we're chatting so much about women's fashion yeah. that we'd really be remiss if we don't chat a little bit about the men, right? Yeah, yeah. So why don't you give us kind of a little overview about what men's top to bottom outfits would look like. Yeah, of course. Well, I'll go, I'll go inside to outside because that's probably easiest. Um, yes, inside to outside. That's better. <laughs> Thank you. So men would have um, worn a shirt, which I've mentioned before. It's that basic linen undergarment that everybody wore. Um, and then um, over uh, after that, they would have put on a pair of hose, um, which depending on the period you're looking at, um, they could cover you from waist to feet, so that's probably more common in the early 16th century, um, or waist to knee, and then you would wear a pair of stockings. So um, waist to knee are called like upper hose, and they are what later become um, breeches in the 17th century, the late 16th and the 17th century. And so there are many types of hose during this period. You've got Venetian, you've got trunk hose, so some are quite slim-fitted, particularly in the early 16th century and in the late 16th century, they sort of balloon out to all different proportions. There is actually, um, you know, some tree legislation that talks about um, men's hose and how um, trying to restrict their size, the amount of fabric you can put into them because they're just getting too big. Um, so, again, that's an example of not really restricting the type of garment but maybe restricting how much fabric is allowed to go into the garment. Um, and in the hose is where you also get the cod piece, which I think is, you know, the most fascinating part of men's clothing during the late 15th and 16th century. So um, initially the cod piece was, um, I guess it sort of served the purpose of a modern fly in men's trousers. So it allowed men to like relieve themselves. They just had, it was just a flap of fabric that they could undo. Um, but over time, it becomes very stiff and structured and almost phallic-like in appearance. Um, there's been a lot written about cod pieces. They are extremely interesting if you're thinking about them in terms of early modern masculinity. Um, but they sort of reach their extreme, I guess, in the mid to late 16th century, and then they sort of um, go away uh, or sort of regress again in size. Um, so then on top Oh, on the torso over the linen shirt, you would have a doublet, which is a sleeved garment um, that covered the torso. So the equivalent of what a woman's bodice would be, for example, or a waistcoat. Um, and these could be, um, they're usually quite close fitting. They could be padded or boned even. Um, and they often held up the hose in the breeches. So you would attach the, whole, the hose in the breeches to the bottom of the doublet. And then over that, you could wear something called a jerkin, um, which was similar to a doublet, but it had no sleeves. It's sort of like modern puffer vests, I guess. 
So it would give you extra warmth over your torso, but they're often made from things like leather, for example. And then on top of that, you could wear a, a, a gown, a long gown, which is sort of like what um, you graduate in now if you go to university or college. Um, and then you could wear cloaks and cassocks and that type of thing. And then you obviously had various types of accessories. So, you know, ruffs or hats, falling bands, that type of thing. So that was sort of basic men's dress during this period. I feel like we've really covered the whole, you know, gamut of fashion and clothing and everything. So I want to say thank you again for joining us. Before I let you go, I'm definitely going to have to thank our listeners who wrote in, among which we have Katie Ray, Julie Rowan, Allie hmm, McIthern, I'm sorry, Allie, Kathleen Verwip, Catherine Stevenson, Doug Breeden, Alina Azadbach, Stacy Stark. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you for always participating in our Ask the Expert. Uh, we couldn't do it without you. So again, thanks a lot. And Sarah Bendall, our expert today, who is the author of Shaping Femininity, Foundation Garments, The Body, and Women in Early Modern England. Did I get all that right, Sarah? Yes, yes. <laughs> Perfect. So everybody go out and get her book if you want to learn any more or anything further from what we've been talking about today. And again, I'm going to make sure that um, everybody follows you. You said you have a Twitter and an Instagram and some pictures that you want to share with us that we'll definitely put in the show notes so that everybody can follow along as you describe all these wonderful um, pieces of clothing. So thank you again, Sarah, for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me. I hope that, um, yeah, I answered all your burning questions. <laughs> you sure did. We can't wait to have you back. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 